Welcome to GLAD, your spatial fix for geography, life, and data. This podcast is brought to you by the Science of Cities and Regions program at the Alan Turing Institute. I'm Levi, your host for today, and I'm here in our remote recording studio with Denny. Hello. And Rachel. Hi. We do something a little different every time, but there's always a healthy dose of all things geography, life, geography life, and data. Today, we bring you another episode in our Day in the Life of series, where we chat with GLAD folks to get the scoop and behind-the-scenes view on what it is like to live their life, what their jobs are, and how they spend mostly their work time. Today, we're chatting with Dr. Darla Monroe. Darla is Director of Research at the Lincoln Institute of Land Policy, leading efforts to support and coordinate the collective body of knowledge produced through the Institute's work and fostering research strategies to advance its policy and educational objectives. She's a geographer with research interests in economic environmental interactions, especially forested ecosystems at the urban-rural interface globally. So thank you for joining us today, Darla. Thank you for having me. It was a delight to be invited. So before we get started on kind of the nitty-gritty in the weeds of what a day in your life is like, I'd like to know how those days came about. How did you get interested in, uh, you know, working at a place like the Lincoln Institute of Land Policy? How, what did you do kind of early on that made you interested? Um, well, a few highlights that I'll go into. So number one that I always like to tell people is that I grew up in Colorado and my family was um, scattered across the Rocky Mountain West and Southwest. My father is from Los Angeles. And so I spent a lot of time in a car staring at landscapes out the window. And so looking at um, various, yeah, ecotomes, biomes, and thinking about the people and their use of that land. But uh, my background was in economics. So I studied economics as an undergrad. It was a scientific social science. Um, along the way, I added a second major of international affairs because I really like to travel and I like foreign languages. Um, my goal when I went to graduate school was to get a master's in applied economics and go work for the World Bank, uh, focusing on Eastern Europe, mm -hmm. which in the 90s was an exciting place to be with all of the post-socialist transformations that were going on. Uh, and I realized basically a semester into my master's degree that I wanted to go deeper uh, and, and learn more of the theoretical basis. So I had really enjoyed the undergraduate classes that I had to take as, as an undergrad, um, and particularly the holistic way of integrating across the social sciences and environmental science. And then I, I picked up some geographic information science skills, spatial statistics skills along the way. So those were very helpful. So, so a lot of my work has been looking at sort of regional changes, structural changes in uh, economies or in policies and what that means for people on the ground. So, yeah. Gotcha. And was it just like a good, was it a good professor in that area or was it the content? What, what made that kind of regional focus stick or was it just always what you were interested in? I kind of discovered land use in the midst of the PhD. So at, that, so at that time, there was a lot of interest in peopling the pixel. So the whatever at that time, two decades, right, two, two and a half decades of Earth-observing satellites and sort of looking at the 
um, deforestation patterns in the Amazon, for example. And so the anthropologists partnered up with the remote sensing scientists to kind of put that context. But I, I do think my um, training in, in regional science and in economics made me want to connect sort of individual parcels to the kind of sort of larger shifts that were happening so that uh, changes in the regional economy, movements from sort of agricultural or manufacturing jobs to service sector jobs. What does that mean for forests and sort of who is living at the urban rural interface and where is their income coming from and how does that affect the forest management decisions they make, for example? So that was a consistent interest for you and then you went on to a master's and then a PhD. Can you tell us a little bit about maybe your journey through academia? Yeah, so uh, coming out of economics into geography, I, I thought that geography was this great interdisciplinary field and that you could really be malleable and drift around and draw from a bunch of different theories. And, and that's true. But there are also distinct camps within geography. And there, there are little niches you can find in the discipline where you don't really have to talk to anybody beyond the whatever 12 theorists most engaged with your work. And so I, so I struggled a little bit, kind of my economics training versus what it meant to really be a human geographer. Uh, and it took me a while to kind of reconcile those, those things. I, I was lucky being at Ohio State for 18 years that... That was a very, very theoretical, theoretically rich and vibrant department with some very heady and often contentious conversations among the faculty, ranging from um, atmospheric science to GIS to uh, social theory. And so I was always innately curious. So I would, I would read my colleagues' work, even if it was about psychoanalytic theories as social theories, for example. I would try really hard to really understand and appreciate where they were coming from, and I found um, a lot of fun sort of knitting those different perspectives together. So have you, have you reconciled these different pieces of your, sort of your training and your background? Do you feel at home now in terms of an identity? Yeah, for sure. It, it, it finally started to come together. Like, I, I worked really hard on the economic geography Part and I have a couple of papers that were really labors of love in that. So, uh, so and again, actually going back to 2007, someone it was someone was teaching our economic and social geography course who went on parental leave, and I was given that course to teach. And I thought I could teach intro to economic geography basically as I learned it with maps of GDP at various scales, for example, and looking at uh, whatever what's it called the new international division of labor in particular ways. And I thought, no, you know what? I'm going to retrain myself and re-educate myself. So then I read all of this very humanistic approaches to economic geography um, and, and, and thinking of us as ourselves as consumers or workers, but also fundamentally social agents and that our, our families and our beliefs and our experiences marked by gender, race, class, et cetera. We brought all of these into our economic transactions. So, so anyway, I finally found some productive places to really integrate those two. And I, I would say just the other day, I was sitting there thinking about, for example, a current topic is um, privatization of school funding. So that's something that is also a land policy issue. And I would say, so I can analyze that 
as a public policy economist might approach it, but I also sort of see the um, larger political project. So the, the idea of like, we're not creating schools from scratch and then saying, which is the best way to fund them. No, there's actually particular political stakes, right? And pots of money that uh, proponents of school privatization are trying to, to get at. So th there's an example of like, I, I think I finally figured out how to make these different parts of my brain talk to one another, but it, yeah, it did take 20 years. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the funny things about geography, right, is that not only is that such fantastic breadth, but they're, for some people, in some kind of special ways, a way to make it an integrated field that, that does sometimes talk across yeah, itself. Yeah, so for sure. That's great. At the, at the end of your time at OSU, you had gotten into a department head role, yeah? Thinking a little bit about then leaving that department head role to uh, join the Lincoln Institute, of land policy, I guess. Can you walk us through why you decided to make that change and then why then? <laughs> yeah, sure. So I will say, um, as I mentioned, I'd, I'd really wanted to do policy work as a grad student, but then got the PhD because I just loved learning. And I always thought with the tenure track job, it was kind of like, if it's meant to be, it'll work out. So I took a tenure track job uh, a, a lot of folks were very intimidated by the OSU reputation, and, and I was very helpfully kind of had that same attitude. If it's meant to be, it will work out. So, so it, all, it all went well. I got tenure. You know, I learned to be a better teacher. I learned how to write grants. All of those things are along the way. But around the time that I got tenure, I kind of thought, all right, what else would I like to do? Um, I will say I, I do also think from my experience, at least, there was a bit of a glass ceiling on, on the research side. So you do see in geography and in many academic disciplines um, that for white women and people of color, often the ways to move ahead and really augment your salary or augment your kind of leadership potential are through administrative positions. So, so anyway, around tenure, I was sort of looking around and I was considering all sorts of things. I considered starting a consulting firm on the side because the models that I do of land use, I can do pretty well at predicting a, a high quality parcel to develop, for example. So I sort of considered that wasn't into the rat race, wasn't into the schmoozing and also not, you know, furthering peri-urban development. Um, I, I interviewed for some jobs in Europe. I looked at various government jobs. So, so that was always kind of in my mind. And then the department chair role, there was a leadership, a very sudden leadership transition due to someone's retirement. And so my chair moved up to dean and, and I just took the chair role. Uh, it was offered to me. I hadn't aspired to it. But the thought was, you know, Darla, you're a fair-minded person and you know what all of us do and the value of that work. You know, so that that was great. And I, I enjoyed it. And it was really invigorating. But, but then COVID hit and COVID was immensely stressful. Right. It was the, the full summer of 2020. I spent that entire summer, summer rejigging our teaching schedule so that we could teach according to this new formula that they handed down on density. And that, that just was really very stressful and, 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 and difficult for everyone and asking people to make adjustments. It's, it's a nice lesson of that we should all be a little bit more adaptable, but that was really kind of trial by fire. So, so I was pretty burned out 
um, and sort of toying. I was right at that stage where I needed to either commit to a second term or, you know, I needed to kind of figure out what my next step was going to be. So um, I had, you know, I'd seen sort of other colleagues. So so Elizabeth Root was another um, dear colleague who had left the year before to go work for the Gates Foundation and lead a research um, arm for Gates. And, and she was really energized and jazzed about really getting to define programs and, and move things along in, in service of public health outcomes. And I thought, wow, that's really inspiring. And so I talked to some friends who worked in the nonprofit world and kind of rejigged my resume. And I sent out two applications through job search on LinkedIn. The second one was LinkedIn. And I had that interview three days later after I after I submitted that. So so that was just perfect timing. So it's it's interesting that that you mentioned that your colleague who left to the uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation um, was interested in having the opportunity to build programs because you were the inaugural director uh, at Lincoln. Can you talk to us a little bit about how that felt to to transition into a new role that hadn't been in the organization before? What did that mean? And perhaps also maybe you can roll in a little bit of explanation of what the Lincoln Institute is more generally, because I imagine for non-U.S. audiences, uh, perhaps including myself until a few weeks ago, uh, it is not a tremendously obvious what what an institute is. And in, in other countries, even the idea of having research institutes that don't sit within the government or within universities is probably less Less common. Yeah, yeah, sure. So, so the Lincoln Institute of Land Policy, it is a nonprofit private operating foundation. So, what that means is that we operate from a foundation that was a gift, in our case, from one family, which is the Lincoln Electric family. So, nothing to do with Abraham Lincoln, but rather Cleveland's Lincoln Electric. Um, which was, if you learn welding, so anybody that has anybody in their family that does welding, I think they're one of the two largest manufacturers of welding and training centers. So, so anyway, this, uh, you know, re- reasonably pro- progressive manufacturing business where the, the grandfather now of the current board chair um, believed very strongly in, in looking to land policy. So, that as uh, economies grew, uh, oftentimes wealth inequality was exacerbated by the unequal distribution and, and value of land. And so, so looking at land policy as, a, as, a, as an equalizer for opportunities. So that, that um, gift was established uh, close to 80 years ago, and then our institute was founded um, 40 years ago next year. And we are, we, right now we're actually talking about the labels of sort of our new and growing um, identity. But one label that's often used is the idea of an, a boundary organization. So a boundary organization connecting research and policymakers and practitioners. So we're, we're sort of a think tank for the translation of research uh, into policy. So, so the Lincoln Institute, so as I mentioned, I, I consider myself like a pretty um, all-purposes land nerd. So I just, like I said, really fascinated by land. And because I had a training in economics, I'd learned quite a bit of urban economics, uh, as well as development economics or peasant studies. So looking at 
um, subsistence agriculture to market transitions. So I had that whole sort of development and urban economics background. And then in geography, the sort of like human environment lens on economic structural change. So there is a lot that goes on at the Institute that speaks to all of these different aspects of my prior academic experience. I'm not a planner. So the kind of the biggest groups that we have are planners and lawyers. So I'm neither a planner nor a lawyer. Uh, I am a geographer. There are a few other geographers. Um, So when we get into the uh, really nitty gritty of municipal finance, for example, that's a a little outside my prior experience. But I... um, you know, I, d- I did a, a graduate certificate in int- introduction to yeah. muni finance from the University of Chicago <laughs> last year. So I can try to like sort of catch up. But anyway, anyway, so yeah, inaugural research director. So this is another point to, to note is that in those years when I was kind of thinking, hmm, do I really want to keep doing the, 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 you know, so as a tenure track faculty, you know, you teach, you write papers, you know, you, you sit on committees. As you get more senior, you sit on more committees. If you're good at that job, they keep asking you to do more, right? And it's kind of like, well, what's the next step there? So looking at research in um, the nonprofit world or even in industry, I had this idea that I was going to have to start from scratch. I was going to have to take an entry-level job. So it, that held me back for a while. Like it wasn't clear to me that you could make this parallel mm-hmm. shift. Um, but noting that uh, the sort of academic experience directly translated, but I also had a leadership experience through the department chairship. So that was really important um, in order to not have to kind of start at an at a entry-level position. I did, I was somewhat familiar with Lincoln before I applied and I did talk to folks, and it's funny, the more I talk to people about my new job, I just keep discovering people who have had uh, dissertation grants from us, for example. And, and people from kind of like all walks of life, so certainly a lot of planners, but um, also geographers. So, so Lincoln has, a, has had a broad impact even in my own kind of networks. Um, yeah, so, yeah, so feeling somewhat confident looking at their website and the variety of confident uh, content that we cover and thinking, yeah, you know what? I know a lot about a lot of these things and, and uh, sort of putting myself out there. And, and luckily it was a, it was a really good fit on both sides. Yeah. When you, when you arrived at Lincoln, right? So it was a new, new role, inaugural research director. Right. What did you do? How did you, how did you manage that transition uh, coming in uh, as a new person in a new role in an organization that has such a history? Yeah, so I had several conversations with uh, my boss, who is the chief program officer, about well, yeah, mm-hmm. what exactly is my job, as well as the the president and CEO, what is my job? So we talked a lot. They, they had this vision that they really needed deliberate, intentional sort of care and feeding of the knowledge base. So that the the institute grew, so I don't know, five, seven years ago, it was 45 people. And now it's, I think we're at 130. So we grew tremendously under this current president, right, who had a very bold vision of expanding the institute, expanding our capabilities in water policy and geographic information science, et cetera, et cetera. Um, So so they needed someone to, to tackle, wrangle this animal, which is the sort of collective knowledge base. So kind of after understanding that, 
I spent, yeah, at least the first half of the year really educating myself. So talking to all of the various teams. So our work is organized in three three basic themes. And then we have associated centers and we have associated what we call geographies. So our Latin America and Caribbean group, which will soon become its own center. It's, it's now called a geography. So I kind of did the rounds of meeting with every team and sort of talking to them and trying to kind of understand um, what they were doing and why and what their, what the intersection of kind of what was on their radar and me thinking about this knowledge base as the whole. I did think about coming in and saying, okay, we're all going to take Eleanor Ostrom's um, social ecological systems framework and we're going to map ourselves to that. And then I thought, no, we're not ready to kind of start there. So I decided to do something a little bit more from the ground up. And then about kind of halfway in, you know, then I saw some clear places where I'm like, I thought my prior research abilities um, and experiences really fit. So now I'm leading um, one project uh, of my own and collaborating on a couple of others. No, that makes sense to to start with listening, right? That's that's a very smart yeah. way to go. Yeah, yeah. I love I love the big picture context of both sort of the institutional setting in which you work and sort of like the work that you're doing. And I wonder if for our listeners, you could walk us through sort of what a, what a normal day is like for doing this kind of work, what kinds of activities, um, what your time budget looks like, where you do the work. Yeah. So at Lincoln, we follow a 37.5 hour work week, which is kind of nice. I think, I think the C-suite probably works more than that, but it's, it's, it's a very communicated norm that you should be able to get your work done in 37.5 hours. So I try to follow that. Um, normally I follow a, a hybrid work mode. So, so everyone is required to be in the office on Wednesdays and one other day. So my normal week would be Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday in the office, Monday and Friday working from home. Um, uh, but the the time is still flexible. I still might do. I, I might take a late afternoon uh, meeting on Skype or sorry, Zoom, Skype. Jeez. But uh, I, I will say, just a side note: the New England winters. The fact that it the sun starts going down at like three forty five. Um, I'm usually on my bike <laughs> at home by then because I don't want to be writing in the dark. Anyway. Um, so a typical work day, there are a lot of meetings. Uh, we work on an annual budgeting cycle. So we propose projects every year and do updates to our sort of program strategies every year. Things can unfold over multiple years, but there, there usually is a pretty tight turnaround from when you propose something uh, in the end of January and you begin it on July 1. So the speed of which everything happens here is is fast. Um, uh, we do have a lot of meetings. I would say a good day is a day for me where I have lots of time to think and write. A good day would be a day with two or fewer meetings, but some days maybe have four or five meetings. So that's a little kind of exhausting. So, so um, I am careful about carving out blocks of time that are dedicated for writing and, and reading and sort of thinking and working, advancing projects, but um, being sort of flexible. Yeah. I've come to sort of like that sort of, um, you know, just getting things done. Like we're ready, to, we're nimble. I right. guess we're nimble in a way that I wasn't in an academic job. And so for you, like, 
don't know, when you wake up, do you look at your email immediately? Do you, do you have sort of a system of sort of how you get your day going? So when I wake up, the first thing I do is the Wordle and connections. Yeah, familiar, very familiar connections. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so now I, I try to, yeah, and thankfully being department chair, whew, that was you know whatever a hundred emails a day. So now I maybe get thirty, so that's okay. Um, yeah, I try. I, I usually don't start my work day un, until uh, sometime between seven and eight. So I might check email. Mm-hmm. Um, before before I leave for the office, okay. but not first ah, thing. Okay. Um, and then when you're thinking about, like, the carving out space for writing, what kind of writing would that be? And how does that compare to sort of the writing that probably a lot of our more academic job listeners might be familiar with? Is it the same? It's fairly similar. Certainly, I have more time for writing than I did as a department chair. The department chair is really hard to move any of my research along, okay. um, mm-hmm. p- particularly under COVID. But I would say, so if you imagine the, the kind of busiest you are on an academic cycle, you know, say teaching two classes and, and serving on a couple of committees, that's about equivalent. Okay. So, so um, um, I forget... I'd have to kind of look at my calendar, but I, I try to block. I, my goal is something like 12 hours for writing a week out of 37.5. I don't often achieve that, but I certainly get a solid four in. Um, and so, uh, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. That's almost a lot. Um, yeah, and I, I've been that pretty, sounds pretty good. It's funny because I do have two deadlines that need to happen in early 2024, and uh, I need to make sure that those happen. Um, cause yeah, I've had a pretty steady stream. It's funny just being here now, it's going on a year and a half of all of my former graduate students and stuff like that, that they're all finishing things up or the last grant that I had. So I've had a pretty good stream of publications even after leaving. So, so it'd be interesting. You could check in with me or two, three years. If, if I'm still hitting the, whatever that bar is like two, two <laughs> publications a year, you know, the yeah. second um, day in the life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, but so just to put it in practical terms, 10% of my um, official position is um, maintaining a stream of research. Okay. So that, that's written. And 10% isn't a lot, but it's still that that's, co- that's coded into the expectations for my job that I am, I am expected to keep a foot and, firmly. And that would be sort of on your own research ideas, not leading mm-hmm. a group yep. or, or overseeing other groups' activities. I could definitely use the Lincoln projects to meet that goal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, but again, but it doesn't need yeah, to be. It's, yeah. it's, it can be your own ideas. That's really cool. So they like it. Uh, you know, I, I, so I, I went to Yale a year ago, Rachel, to meet with Karen Cito, right? And we, we um, wrote a paper. There was a small group that she convened. So they like that kind of thing. They think that that's cross-fertilization, yeah. you know, that brings new ideas back into the institute. Yeah, I think I was sort of wondering about the, I mean, it is a lot of time for writing. And if it's paper writing, the extent to which this is a Lincoln expectation on your time or something that you've internalized over the years, like, do you do it because you want to? Do you do it because you feel like you have to? Or do you do it because the job asks it of you or some combination of those things? No, that's a great question, and I, th- I think it's um, definitely worth reflecting. I think it's definitely at this point 
it's because I want to, and it's those things that I really want to do. Um, so, so I, it did take the pressure off. So at, at Ohio State, as on the tenure track, I struggled a little bit because I'd been mentored in such a collaborative mode. And at that time, particularly the transition from Larry Brown, the super famous or notorious, you know, whatever perspective you had, department chair that he pushed very much single authored, single authored publications, be a research star. And if you um, elbow people out of the way or step on toes, all the better, right? And so that was the kind of mode that I, he, you know, he had just retired when I came in, but that was sort of the the spirit of the department at that time. And I was trying to do collaborative, interdisciplinary papers. I was publishing a fair amount in agricultural economics journals. And and I struggled with that a bit of, um, you know, some critical feedback from my senior colleagues. It was pretty helpful, but, um, but there was still this, like, bean counting of, you know, hit the annals, publish in the annals, pay attention to your impact factor, make sure you get a sole authored publication every few years, blah, blah, blah. Um, so it's, it's liberating that I don't have to think, I don't have any of that now. It's more about who do I really want to read this paper? Um, I think already as a, as a senior faculty member, you start shifting your focus instead of looking upwards, kind of looking downwards and thinking, if I was a first semester PhD student in a seminar, what paper would be really helpful to read? So I, I, I orient a lot of my writing towards those goals. But yeah, it, it is absolutely about working with the people that I like and care about um, and writing those pieces that are, yeah, fulfilling intrinsically at this so, point in my career. So it sounds like both in terms of how you organize your day and what you choose to work on and especially what kinds of writing you choose to do, that it's about choice at this stage of career, that it's a little bit less the industry that you're in, maybe, and a little bit more the stage of career? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, do you think you would have this if you were, had you, if you were no longer, if your your term ended as department chair and you reverted back to being a faculty member, do you imagine that that, it would look much different from what you do now? Yeah, I think, so one thing I will say, um, that is so energizing and wonderful about being, being at Lincoln is that we have this normative mission. And, and I was already in the process of having some of these conversations, not at, not at OSU, but in my broader scientific network. So I was, I was on the steering committee for the global land program for, I don't know how many years that was, six years, no, five years, time is a blur. Anyway, so we were having these conversations about doing normative science, which means that instead of saying, what are the functional relationships between carbon dioxide emissions and atmospheric forcing and climate change, asking instead, we know that we need to keep warming under two degrees Celsius or, you know, catastrophic things are going to happen. What do land systems need to look like in order to ensure that that doesn't happen? Um, and, and it's not the same as engineering, right? It's really doing this as, as sort of thoughtful science. So, so um, this mission statement of, of my, my institute and the kind of goals around which we organize our work, like luckily it's a very good thematic fit because we do, um, you know, we have to answer to a board of directors and we have to 
have dialogues with them several times throughout the year of, you know, they give us lots of input and we debate, for example, how far do we go into mortgage markets? Is that still land policy? So we have these sort of healthy debates about what our charge is. Um, but I, I think that it, it, as a faculty member at OSU that I, you know, I, I teach my classes and I sit on committees, I just don't, I don't feel like those kind of larger inspirational sort of moments about um, the value of the work and what it means to people's lives. I think that was missing there. And I, that's, not to, that's not to disparage my prior institution. It was just sort of my position within, you know, those structures that I, I, that I wasn't able to, to, to draw that from them. But so, so here just having these colleagues, you know, and, and, and again, that then the nice thing to do too is at a sort of mid to late career change is learning new things, right? Our brains get, um, very, in trend. I don't know. Everyone's talking about neuroplasticity. Yeah. So you like sort of learning new things, you know, so, so really um, listening to what lawyers have to say about um, manufactured homes, for example, you know, I, it's just putting myself in, in a, an environment where there are, are, are so many kind of new ideas and new things and, and, and staying true to the things that I sort of care about and want to work on. You know, it's been a really nice sort of alchemy, I would say. That sounds, this, this is great. This is fantastic. I want to take <laughs> just a few minutes before I turn it over to Danny, but in terms of work and sort of thinking about how this fits into Lincoln, but also maybe in previous jobs, how you work. So, you know, would you say you're a morning person? When would you say you get your best work done? Like, how does that, how does that work for you? Yeah, I'm 100% a morning person. Um, I'm also married to a teacher, so the alarm goes off at 5.45. Um, and so, yeah, my best work is early in the morning. You know, I, I try to really move my writing along first thing in the morning. The, the um, yeah, big ideas sort of need to happen. Then usually I don't have any meetings until, like the earliest meeting would be 9.30 and oftentimes somewhat even later than that. Um, and then likewise, too, I also am tired, you know, of, of sort of people by the end of the day. So I also try not to have meetings after 4 p.m. Um, sometimes that's unavoidable. Uh, and then, you know, mid-afternoon, things like editing, revising, and, and honestly, you know, paperwork. So yeah. there's a fair amount of paperwork. Right, right now, I'm, um, we are working on a new guidebook of our policies and procedures and uh, I'm working through that. So I, I get a lot, actually, another request that hit my desk. Our legal team was just redrafting our guidelines for copyrights and permissions and whatnot. And so she gave it to me. And then I write a nice little, I do a lot of kind of aspirational statements of, we get to be creative and we get to write new things about land and tools that you can use. So let's do it responsibly. Yeah. You know, so, so I do a fair amount of that kind of writing, too. Um, yeah. So, so the moving my personal goals, that has to happen first thing in the day. Yeah. So, okay. So, to, and then a healthy. So, to go back yeah. to your sort of like, you know, the wordle and connections and, and then looking at email. So, <laughs> on a day where you want to get some writing done, do you sort of, yeah, what do you do? Do you wake up? Because I'm thinking about when you read about writers and what their writing routine is. Because I think that in some ways our jobs are not so different from that. So, is it a question of like getting your brain awake and then 
like, do you just pick up your laptop and start writing? Or do you have a place where you have to go do that writing? Is there a, a setting that you have to, an ambiance? Yeah, like, you know, some people... I don't want to. I don't want to feed examples into your mouth. So I'm just sort of curious. I mean, yeah, yeah, I wake yeah, yeah, up, yeah. and if my laptop is there, and if I happen to pick up my laptop while I'm in bed with my coffee, I will not move for hours. So I actually just don't keep my laptop near the bed because I just disappear. So it's a really good time to work, but it's also terrible if I had something to do because I'll work from bed. Oh, interesting. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's very true that I I have to put my devices away when I get home and I want to be with my husband and not be like, oh, there's an email I needed to send. Um, yeah, I, I vary. So I'm more about, yeah, b- beginning of the day, that's usually really important that it's hard to do the hard thinking writing, uh, you know, after lunch. But um, I, I, I write reasonably well, reasonably well in my work office. You know, I have a nice, you know, space and a nice big table um, I sometimes go to coffee shops. Like I like, I like coffee shops particularly in um, writing your kind of, I, I call it like the ugly first draft. So I, I spend a lot of time like outlining and note taking and concept mapping or whatever. And then I like to just kind of vomit out an ugly draft. So that, I can do that at the office. I could do that um, in a coffee shop. Sometimes I can do those things at home. But for me, it's more about um, the time commitment and I'm very much sort of a, you know, I can trick my brain into, um, I, I use the Pomodoro method. So that's 25 minutes. So even if I'm like, I don't want to do this, so I'm going to put that timer on. You can do anything for 25 minutes. And then once I'm in a roll, I can keep yeah, it going. Yeah. So, so, um, and then I do think, yeah, tracking, like setting goals, like doing, um, doing a writing plan. So sketching out, uh, okay, I have a draft of a manuscript due. Um, okay, I'm going to chart out, yeah. say, a 12-week plan to get that done. And then I put uh, deadlines in my calendar, like, hey, it's week three. Um, you should be writing on your lit review. So th- so that planning is really important for me, and it helps me. Yeah, that's great. And you, you mentioned sort of putting devices away when you get home. Do you struggle with what we would generally call work-life balance is it a struggle and is the struggle different than it was before is it stayed constant across stages of career and type of job yeah I think I um that, yeah, that's a great question I think as a sort of a type a personality I could work all the time and I could be totally focused about work so I need to have some discipline it is really nice to have an employer that stresses like the 37.5 hour work week and that when you're on vacation, you're on vacation. And by the way, please use all of your vacation days, you know? So, so I, I think my, my work sends pretty good messaging about that and folks are respectful. I have to use some discipline. This is that, you know, I have five direct reports. And so um, I have ideas about things I want to say to them and I might draft an email, but I will, Make sure that I'm not sending them emails late at night, early in the morning, or on the weekend. So I'll use the scheduler um, to make sure that email goes out later. Uh, and then I also think uh, I'm, I'm mindful. Like you know, my husband, I can talk over every work drama with him, um, but being mindful of that—that that, that this is our time to be together—and um, oh, you sound fairly conscious of being a good example in terms of work-life balance. Yeah, I think I think uh, I heard things while I was at Ohio State. So this is a famous 
this did not happen to me, but this happened to my colleague that she was asked to be on a pretty um, intense, high-profile committee. And she said to the the dean who asked her, she said, I have young children at home. I'm not sure about my work-life balance. And he said, work-life balance? You know what I say about work-life balance? All work, no life. That's your balance. You know, and, and so, um, yeah, so I, I would say it's something even going into tenure about thinking about what is sustainable and recharging your batteries and, and just, uh, I don't, I, you know, I, I, one of my faculty colleagues at Ohio state works seven days a week. You know, she's into her seventies now. She, I'm sure she's still working seven days a week. Uh, and she said that a big motivating force was that she was going to get scooped you know, so she had to get that, that she was going to find the, the final set of data that was going to turn the tides and we were all going to start tackling the climate crisis. But also her colleagues might scoop her. You know, I just I don't care about that. I, I don't think I ever really did care about those things, but um, it's not for me anyway, healthy. Yeah. Let's um, change gears a little bit from work-life balance and one of the things that we wanted to talk about was creativity in a in a really general sense, um, because that assumes that academic work is creative, which I believe so. But it's not it's not writing songs, but it's maybe not not super far from from that. There's an element of creating something out of a blank page and and coming up with new ideas. And I'm sure there's a lot of creative moments now in your new job. Could you maybe walk us through? Where do you find those pockets for, for being creative? How being a director and overseeing programs and overseeing ideas that other people um, come up with or develop, um, how you can still find ways, or do you still find, I guess is a first question, ways to of being creative? Yeah, for sure. That's um, a great question. So it, it is always nice to um, have some autonomy in, in deciding on the things you want to work on and how you want to work on them. And so we have a lot of that here, like a faculty member would, which is really great. I know it's not necessarily the case at every think tank that you get to make sort of choices about how you design your projects or who your collaborators are. Um, it's funny because my colleagues and I were just talking about um, what constitutes good leadership mm. And when we have a dialogue here a little bit about leadership versus management, that is a bit of a false binary because sometimes we think like folks are good managers, but they're not necessarily good leaders. And I think a hallmark of leadership is, is having a broad idea of what your aspirations, kind of like where you want to go, what you'd like to see, and then scanning, scanning sort of horizontally who's in your networks scanning vertically sort of who's maybe above or below you, you know, that, that could be a thought partner in advancing mm. that. And so, so, so a really effective leader deploys the people around them, sort of like unlocks so their potential and their aspirations and, and helps them find ways to connect that to, to moving the sort of larger goals of the, of the, of the institute, of the team, et cetera. So I think there's a lot of creativity um, that comes out of, in my case, listening to these these different teams um, about the the their priorities and the things they'd like to work on, 
and make either making connections across different teams. So I've been working, we, we have a center for geospatial solutions. That's where our geospatial analytics people live. And they, they're a contract center. So, so, you know, they do a lot of work for external partners, who, you know, who need visualizations about property tax um, systems or whatever. So figuring out ways to integrate spatial data into some existing projects within our programs that haven't used that geospatial lens. So, so there's creativity and kind of like listening to different groups and saying, hey, could we work together? Um, as well as also thinking within groups, like are there grant opportunities we should be looking at? Oh, I know a geographer who does this particular thing. Let's bring him in on this team. So it's creative almost uh, at plotting that you have to become a creative plotter, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, coming up with plans yeah. and then uh, <laughs> with the right people to at least partner partner for. I mean, I suppose that there's an element of that that is career progression, Um but how how is it different from the sort of creative plotting that you will have to do as a as an academic as a relative I mean as a senior academic, or is it different? It can be different. I mean, I think it's it's interesting too because I was trained, you know, all the way through to my postdoc in places that had large research centers, mm. and then OSU was the opposite of that, and OSU has tried to create research centers. Uh, and ha- and it has some really good ones. So I'm not, you know, um, there's some notable exceptions of some really good grassroots one. But OSU, OSU has a lot of top-down kind of de- like these teams will work together in these ways. Um, and so sort of figuring out that balance. Like I think I think for sure in in a faculty setting, um, I had the ability to form teams like always. And I I did call I did a variety of sort of collaborations across my campus, collaborations within my own apartment department, collaborations with colleagues in other universities. I just think that there, um, you know, there's a lot of overhead into putting those together and maintaining yeah. them and, and sort of corralling um, people. So it's both easier to do in my sector and I've gotten more skilled at corralling like the sort of difficult conversations of trying to make a bargain with people about, you know, hey, if you help me, we'll get something really great. Like you have to be, um, you know, very, very proactive. Actually, so we mentioned Karen Cito at Yale. Karen Cito, if you look at some of her papers and like particularly she's led some papers where she's gotten, you know, a team in Japan and then a team in Austria to do their modeling exercise and then sort of pull it together. And so she's gotten some like really, really big academic all-stars who aren't necessarily kind of looking to broaden their networks. She's gotten them to speak to one another, you know, in really productive ways. And I asked her once, I was like, Karen, you know, it's so impressive. How do you do this? How do you do this? And she said, with a lot of begging, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, basically a lot of persuasion. So, so I'm more comfortable doing that now than I was 10 years ago, for sure. Yeah. And that, that brings another point I wanted to discuss a little bit, and is the, the one on skills. I mean, definitely in academia, as you move through career, you, you pick up new, you sort of forget some skills sometimes, like writing code and so on, as you do it less. But you also pick up new skills and corral in and, and a little bit of begging is, is probably on, on the list. But what are some of the skills that, you found invaluable to have from your 
previous academic life in your new one, in your new role? What are the things that if you hadn't been professor in at a university, you would have, you're not sure how you would have got. And they're useful, sorry, that's the other thing. One thing is having them, but another one is that they're, they're useful. For sure, for sure. Um, so I think, again, that doing the, the whole research process um, teaches you how to think. So defining problems, mm. uh, explaining why they're important, uh, being able to lay out um, uh, various alternative explanations or alternative solutions and argue or, or first evaluate the evidence, right? Evaluate the evidence for this solution versus that solution and then be able to defend it. So those are the skills that you really get in, in a PhD program, right? Going through the, the tenure process, all of that, that you, your, your ability to um, think, uh, explain, defend, you know, make a compelling case. All of those uh, are, are really, really important. What about mentoring? Does, would you say we're, are oh, we yeah, good? Do, sure. we, do we learn to be good at mentoring? Yes and no. I mean, again, it just sort of depends. I mean, I do, I do think in general, there's so many aspects of kind of academic problems that come up, the interpersonal academic problems that are, that can be, could be addressed with better management principles. So I think because of a culture of academic freedom, there has been some reticence to talk about or, or just try to standardize, like say within a unit, within a department, standardize how the advisor-advisee relationship, you know, should look. So, so that was something that that we were certainly working on at OSU. I'm sure that's continued since I was since I left. Um, but yeah, just some things like uh, communicating expectations, sort of very clearly, and making an expectation that um, you need to work in a way that um, supports the sort of health and well-being of the whole. So I'll go back to my Larry Brown example. Larry Brown famously bragged that you could be a tenure-track faculty member at Ohio State and be an asshole and it wouldn't count against you. Um, but there, there's a huge human cost to that. There's the cost of the, you know, for the grad students, for the staff, um, yeah, for, for everyone. So on the, on the one hand, sort of putting grad, so teaching grad students sort of how to think, mentoring them. I think we do a lot more collaboration with grad students than we did in my day and sort of writing with them and the, 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 the very valuable collegial relationship parts of the mentoring process are really great. But I, I do think um, we, could, we could do better. It's heartwarming to hear that that's useful also elsewhere. That that some of, some of those skills of of learning to work with people and and really learning to think, as you put it, um, also applies beyond. That's that's really useful. Yeah, and in, in my in my current job, as I, I mentioned, I I supervise um, one policy analyst and four associate directors, and so they all have their own teams and they're leading um, and and. Uh, they are the gamut from, you know, sort of planners, to economists, um, to sort of public policy folks, and some much more practitioner oriented. So, 
So that's been um, a big learning curve of how best to mentor them. But a lot of it has been just observing, like showing up and kind of observing and talking through with them what they're sort of working on and providing support um, for that. But so one of the things I'm doing in my job, again, that I was tasked on doing is helping people write more clearly about Mm -hmm. research design so what are the big things in the world that we're addressing and why, like, what are our values? What are the, what are the changes we are hoping to affect? What choices did we make about how we're addressing these sort of methodologically, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm, um, I'm getting a great opportunity to kind of help standardize those, um, yeah. those writing prompts. Yeah. Those are the, the skills from academia that you found useful. Which ones actually did you think when you were an academic that were useful everywhere and, and actually you found out that the world is very different and you perhaps don't need don't need that much? What are the things that we think we depend on that everyone should depend but actually don't really? That's a real uh, man, I'd have to think about that a ton. I'm sure I'll have a better answer like at 5 a.m. But I would say on that translation of research to policy to practice. Mm. So I think, I think again, that we, in, in the research world, we spend so much time trying to get the right set of numbers, mm. you know, or really like the, the, the best answer. And um, first off, not realizing all of the work that has to happen downstream, right? So that, that is a multi-stage complex sort of process. And there's so many contingencies. So, so much of what we do in a research, in an academic research center, the setting is isolating, right? All the different variables, so you can really explore the, uh, you know, one relationship. And, and the real world's messy and complicated, and so sometimes you just need a, a way forward. And sometimes you're, um, what's the word? You're 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 just trying to initiate sort of a process rather than have the yeah. be all end all answer. As I think Tuki said, putting another gargoyle on the cathedral rather than building your own building. But uh, yeah, another academic skill uh, is keeping things to time. So unfortunately, <laughs> we uh, are running out of time for today. But thank you, uh, Darla, for being with us today. Thank you, listener, for for joining us today. Let us know your experiences, uh, our, your pros, your cons, the things we did well, the things we didn't do well, um, at our email thegladpodcast at gmail.com. We've had plenty of really good suggestions for new episodes or people that we should talk to, and we really value your feedback. In addition, please make sure to go on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and give us a rating, hopefully five stars, but whatever you're feeling. Um, It really helps the show out, improves our visibility, and makes sure that we uh, emerge anywhere where... um, people can find their podcasts. It's nice to hear the pros and cons, but please, 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 if you're going to tell us what we're not doing well, be nice and constructive because we're just humans on the other end of this microphone doing our very best outside of our normal 37.5 hour a week jobs to do something fun for our listeners. So we love we love the constructive criticism, but please emphasis on constructive. So uh, thank you very much for those of you that have sent stuff along um, and we will be in touch with more glorious new content Uh, very soon. Thanks a lot, and we're glad you're here.